I would challenge any physician, any nurse, any person in this country to let me know that they don't have some connection with somebody, if not themselves, somebody that's dealing with addiction or their life has been lost to addiction. You want to stop. You want to stop taking these drugs eventually. And your brain is like, yeah, that'd be great. But you and I both know you can't do it. For me, there's always hope. I mean, I know that it's it's a horrible thing that we're losing people at a rate in which I have never seen over the course of my 20-year career. However, I also see people get better. People do recover from opioid addiction, but the number of American lives lost each day is staggering. Hi, I'm David North. Those were the voices of Dr. Sandeep Kapoor, recovering addict John Allen, and addiction recovery specialist Heather Hugelmeyer. John is the voice describing the inner monologue of a man and his brain addicted to drugs. This is John's story, and a story for everyone, of help and hope. Today, John is a healthy-looking man in his 30s. He describes his early encounters with opioids as a teen. I was 16 years old the first time I was prescribed Vicodin. So I was a kid, you know, I tore my knee playing sports. An orthopedic surgeon gave me Vicodin and I, I took it. And you know, that led to 15 years of a very uh, difficult road for me. You know, there were some flat lines, there were some plateaus, there was, but there was a lot of valleys. Growing up, I always felt like I was less than, you know, I, I felt a sense of inadequacy you know, I felt like I wasn't good-looking enough, handsome enough, smart enough, sociable enough. And the first time I took Vicodin, all of those feelings melted away. My anxieties, my insecurities, I didn't feel any of them. So it was like not only this physical pain relief, which is whatever. I, I needed pain relief for two days after my, my knee surgery. That's the honest truth. I didn't need them for pain. They filled uh, a, a void in me emotionally that I felt, I felt this lift... And, you know, that was, the, that was the, the allure. That was the allure. And it just, I felt that I needed them all the time to feel that way all the time. As with many high school students, John was familiar with occasional drinking and marijuana use. But pain relief, a boost in confidence, even a new social circle, John's brain said, this is for me. They made me energetic. They made me outgoing. They made me sociable. They made me confident. With alcohol, marijuana, whatever other drug you want to mention, I never had a problem saying, okay, enough's enough, the next day. You know, the next morning, it wasn't like I'm thinking about taking a drink after a night of drinking. Um, with opiates, the difference is they become a part of you for an addict. Uh, once you become addicted to these medications, you, um, your body physically craves them. Your brain starts to go on overload and fire and say, you want to stop feeling bad? We just take another pill. You want to stop. You want to stop taking these drugs eventually, and your brain is like, yeah, that'd be great, but you and I both know you can't do it. John continued using opioids through high school and his college years. Despite his addiction, in his early 20s, he used his charm and confidence to convince an employer to give him a responsible job at a six-bay auto shop in Garden City, New York. I reflected well in his business in the sense that my interactions with his customers were positive ones and people uh, like me. You know, when, when we talk on an interpersonal level, people seem to respond well to me in that environment, so he kept me around. Although I'd show up late quite frequently, almost daily in fact, I came to work every single day. 
I didn't call out sick. And that's another thing with the opiates. You know, you pow- you're able to power through. You know, you don't feel pain. You don't feel sick. You don't feel any of that stuff. So even if you are, you're able to push through and ignore it. That is, as long as the addict and the brain have a supply of drugs. At this point in our conversation, I asked John about that. He says heroin was available, and it's much more powerful synthetic analog fentanyl. John describes a nearly fatal encounter home alone with fentanyl. I went into respiratory depression, so I was struggling to breathe. Um, it's like being underwater, and you, you swim up to the surface, and you, and you stick just your lips out of the top of the water, and you, you gulp a little bit of air, and then you go back under the water. Enough to survive. And you, just enough to survive, and you're doing that over and over the whole night, and you're tired. So now I'm tired. I'm falling asleep because I'm very high from these medications, but I know that if I fall asleep, I'm probably not going to wake up. It's very horrible. It's just it's scariest, scariest thing. John says a girlfriend arrived to find him struggling, and she helped him into a new day. But despite this brush with death, John's episode with fentanyl was not the last chapter in his descent. But eventually, he decided to seek help. Heather Hugelmeyer is a clinical social worker and program director of the Garden City Treatment Center. When somebody reaches the point that they call, typically there's some sort of event that has caused them to make that phone call at that particular moment. Maybe there's been a fight at home, maybe they've been arrested, maybe something they just feel extremely depressed and hopeless and in that moment are ready to do something about their substance use issue. And when they make that call, if it's two weeks before they get in here, then we may lose that opportunity, what I call the lightning in the bottle where they're ready to make a step and, and to take that step, but that can disappear at any given time if too much time has gone by. And if too much time passes, the brain's call for opioids may be too much to resist and a life may be lost. More with Heather Hugelmeyer later in the program. Hi, I'm David North and this is Health Story. John Allen continued to use opioids despite a near-fatal encounter with fentanyl but he was alerted to help at the Garden City Treatment Center. After surviving 15 years of using a variety of opioids, he decided to stop for good in 2015. But not everyone makes the call. Northwell Health is helping patients with a variety of substance abuse issues find the help they need by using a conversational program called SBIRT, S-B-I-R-T. Dr. Sandeep Kapoor. Screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment has been our way to incorporate universal screening for substance misuse within primary care and emergency medicine, and it truly falls under the umbrella of three of the largest clinical departments in any health system, which is emergency medicine, uh, medicine, as well as uh, psychiatry behavioral health. Dr. Kapoor says Espert is effective in that at some point nearly everyone comes in contact with a health provider who has an opportunity to ask non-confrontational questions in an appropriate setting and actively listen to the answers. This is one of those issues that it crosses every boundary any organization can have. I mean, this is a true public health crisis that we're dealing with. How do we challenge ourselves? And not just ourselves, but how do we challenge the norm where we actually humanize this? And we don't look at that person as the addict that we want to call them, but we look at that person as a person. 
as a patient, as someone's brother, sister, family member, neighbor. There's no other industry in this world that we can have these kind of conversations. We all go to the doctor. See, only place that I can imagine is not weird to have this conversation. That is, I think, the simplest thing that we can start doing. Because once we start doing that, the next step really is to start the conversation. We've been very fortunate in the fact that we've seen successes here to have the right kind of leadership to allow us to go share our lessons learned with other health systems in New York State and throughout the country so that we can start doing something a bit differently. Because right now what we're doing, those numbers are not going down, unfortunately. And those numbers are shocking. Overdoses cause the deaths each day of more than 140 Americans, a 9-11 scale loss every three weeks, according to federal officials. Dr. Kapoor says ESPERT is a unique tool in addressing the crisis, as virtually everyone comes into contact with a healthcare professional sometime, who then has an opportunity to ask non-confrontational questions in an appropriate setting and actively listen to the answers. Heather Hugelmeyer at the Garden City Treatment Center describes what may happen next. Once the ESPERT team identifies somebody who may be willing to, in that moment, take the next step and begin to explore whether their use is really a problem and perhaps maybe want to do something about it, that's where we come in. So the health coaches will contact us, they'll have a patient contact us, and then what we do is expedite them in through the intake process again just we can do it in 24 to 48 hours have somebody come in have them come in for an intake and go from there so we're really the support for ESPERT when ESPERT identifies somebody and they're willing to take that step then we bring them in and try and work with them and explore where they're at what they're looking to do and try and help the patient to meet whatever it is that their goals are a sad irony for anyone seeking help may be overcoming fear and vulnerability fear of putting family relationships at risk, jeopardizing their jobs, or prospects for future employment. Substance use records and treatment are protected under federal confidentiality laws that are actually more stringent than other health privacy laws. And that is to allow people to be able to come in. No information can be released without that individual's consent. So that's really important for people to know. Your work is not going to find out. Nobody's going to know that you're not going to allow us to let in. We need your permission in order to be able to do that. It may sound like a paradox, but while retaining privacy, participating in a recovery program with others is an opportunity to unload personal burdens and take in a hopeful, healthier outlook. John Allen. You connect with people whose struggles are analogous to your own. You know, you sit there and you say, hey, that's comp." You hear somebody qualify and you say, hey, that's comparable to my struggle. That's how I feel when I'm in the grips. That's why I don't want to return. You know, so if you now the newcomer can look at somebody with 30 years and admire that and say, hey, this is possible for me, too. So that's inspirational. But that person, the fact of the matter is that person who has 30 years is very similar to that person who has three days. You know, and, and, if, and if we return, if we make the determination, hey, I'm going to test the waters, I'm going to dip my toe in the pool one more time, that could be your last time. John says recovering addicts must cope with the challenges of reinventing their lives and their circumstances and must cope with society's perceptions of the dangerous, antisocial, and even criminal behaviors an addict may be capable of. 
But Heather Hugelmeyer encourages us to always remember the addict's humanity. It's like a horrible whirlpool that as you, that because you're using and your use progresses, you do terrible things that you wouldn't do if you were sober. You hurt people and, and behave in ways that you under normal circumstances wouldn't. And because you've done those things, you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel horrible, you feel undeserving, all those things you said, so then you use because it's uncomfortable to feel those things, which continues the progression and it's this awful cycle that's very hard to get out of. And that's where hope really becomes an important factor. Hope that I am deserving, hope that I can, that my life can be better than what it is now, that I can make different choices. It's not too late. That's a big piece for people. Thank you, Heather Hugelmeyer of the Garden City Treatment Center. During my conversations with Heather, Dr. Sandeep Kapoor, and John Allen, it became clear that traditional approaches to combating addiction and substance abuse have decades of success but perhaps it's time to reconsider the idea of the addict being anonymous. While respecting the right to privacy, John Allen and others say today's astounding death toll is inspiring many to speak out to end the stigma of addiction and to launch educational campaigns similar to those during the depths of the AIDS crisis, where silence equals death. Speak up and seek help for yourself, loved ones, and on behalf of our community. I'm David North. To find out more about SBIRT and programs for battling the opioid crisis, visit northwell.edu. Many thanks to this program's technical director, Andre Doughty, and thank you for listening. John Allen has the last word. I asked John about stigma and what he thinks parents should know about addiction. This is a very, um, this is a very important one, right? This is one of the most important questions that you've asked me. If you know in your heart of hearts that your child has a problem with these drugs, do whatever it takes to get them help. It's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of. The whole country is full of young adults stemming from 13-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids, all the way up to uh, elderly people who are addicted to these medications. So if you love somebody and you know that they're struggling, try your best to get them help. You have to at least try because they, they don't think that they can try for themselves. Thank you, John. Be well. Look north at northwell.edu.